Brothers and sisters, visitors, friends, we're going to turn to chapter 3 in the book of Ruth if you have your Bibles. We also have it in the bulletin. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Amen. Father, thank you for presenting yourself, for revealing yourself in your holy scriptures. I pray now that you would move your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would descend upon us and soften our hearts and ears to hear from what you have to tell us that you would get each of us out of the way and deliver your message as you see fit. We pray on the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we are now 75% of the way through this story, this, this, this story of uh, an average woman in the ancient Near East named Ruth, this story that is being used to display the very character of God. And we've witnessed several different people at this point Uh, Main focus mainly being on Ruth, on Naomi, her mother-in-law, and over the last two chapters now, this man named Boaz of the the clan of Elimelech. I want to remind us, though, as we've talked about the last two weeks, that the primary character in this story is God, that that God is showing his primacy and his promise to redeem those he chooses and to orchestrate life to fulfill his very plans. And last week, we talked a little bit about this God sandwich, this, this idea that that one part is God, that he's orchestrating his plans, that there are no coincidences, that everything, every minute detail in our lives is being worked out for his plans, and that at the other end of that, that God is working out blessing, that he's working out his promises, that he's going to bless us possibly in a way that we might not see coming, in a way that we might not have previously considered a blessing, 
but he's doing something significant in our lives. And then the meat of it in the middle of us is this outworking by God's grace, our ability to step out in this inconvenient faith, to to step forward and actually do the work of God in our lives. And as we mentioned in the prayer earlier, Ruth remains this godly example. Our sister Ruth remains this godly example of inconvenient faith. Because without, without knowing the outcome with which she was going into, she left her land. She left her home country in Moab. She left all the gods that she had worshipped, her, her mother, her father, all of her extended family. She left everything behind to have no guarantees, to have nothing but the presence of God, the God that we worship in, in Judah, in Bethlehem. And in chapter 2, she continues to step out into this faith. She, she, can, she goes out into the field. She gets out of bed and goes out into the field, not knowing if she's going to be provided for, just knowing that she has to try to eat. She has to feed herself. She has to feed her mother-in-law. And so she's trying her best to survive in the circumstances in front of her, not, not knowing if she's even going to come back unharmed. We talked a little bit about the dangers that some of these women faced in the ancient Near East, that it's, it's no light thing to go out into public like this. And through all of this, she's displaying what we, called, what we talked about last week again was chesed, this, this idea of covenant, this idea that God's promise for our well-being, that, that, uh, that this connection that God has established by his own power, by his own will, he is working out in her through her inconvenient faith. And this, this chesed, this, this, uh, this godly covenant that is displayed is also shown and brings to the attention another godly person, the, the, the man Boaz. And this is a man whose faith is also inconvenient. He's in a position of life right now because he stayed faithful to God's word. We see uh, the fruits of faithfulness, that he has land, he has success. Uh, we talked about from Proverbs that he has the, he, he's seen as a, as, a, as a worthy man in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. And this is the plan that's being orchestrated by God. This plan being orchestrated by God is actually revealing this, this hased, this, this, uh, this rejuvenation, rejuvenation of faith it's, it's, it's presenting it actually to Naomi. Naomi's getting to witness now this, what it looks like to remain faithful, to be inconveniently faithful, but to actually see God's promise come through in a significant way, even though she might be lacking in faith herself. Because chapter one, we talked about, she come, she's come back to Bethlehem now. She calls herself Mara. She's bitter. Mara meaning bitter. Uh, she, she said she went away full and she's come back empty. And that's a real feeling. That's a, that re, that's a real feeling of loss that, that Naomi's experiencing. She went away with her family intact with hopes that, you know, things aren't working out well in Judah, but we can make a, we can make a way for ourselves in, 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 in Moab. We can find a way to survive and thrive in a new country. Even though that's not what God really wants for us, I mean, it's possible, so we should just maybe take a step forward and do it. And she lost her husband. She lost her firstborn son. She lost her secondborn son. And now she's coming back. She's returned empty. But Ruth, Ruth has come empty and is prepared to be filled by the Lord. She's, she's come empty in full acknowledgement, not, not complaining about the calamities that have been brought upon her, not complaining about all the, the issues that she's facing. She's actually being brought and she's being prepared to be, full, to be filled. We see this in the harvest when she went out in that faith, she got to, to glean from the outskirts that is demanded by the law for the Israelites, that you would let the, the less privileged and the marginalized gather from the outskirts of your own field. And she's, she went there thinking, I'm going to get by maybe for the next couple days, but she got fed abundantly. She got invited to Boaz's table as if she was a servant, as if she wasn't a foreigner, as if she had some right to be there. She was invited to that table. And she ate her fill, and we said that she went home with leftovers. I shouted out before, I love leftovers. That's 
that's a, a tremendous blessing to go home with. She, she, went not, she not only filled herself, but she went home with extra. And so we see this breakdown happening. Chapter 1 focusing, it's, it's been tracking with wonder how God uses providence to set his plan in motion. And chapter 2 has been this blossoming of redemption, this, this start that we're starting to see a sapling form of, of redemption in, God's, in the story of Ruth and by God's grace. This, this faithfulness can produce, an out, God's faithfulness produces an outworking of faithfulness. That, that inconvenient faith is brought on by God's inconvenient grace, that he, he gives abundantly to us when we do not deserve it and when we don't even think that it's possible to happen. And we see this reflected in Ruth and in Boaz. We see grace working. But the thing with grace is, grace is, is all about timing. Grace is all about trusting God's timing, and, and this takes practice. Timing takes practice. The end of chapter 2, Naomi is excited. I read from uh, the Long Island Mother's Translation. I won't do it again because my mom insisted that I, I was making fun of her, and I promise I wasn't. It was maybe making fun of my grandma a little bit, but... Uh, <laughs> We talked about how excited this mom was at the prospect of Boaz. That, that here's a man who's, who's well thought of by the community, he's well established, and he's a redeemer. He's, he's actually close enough in our family that he can actually step in and redeem this family. Redeem Naomi and Ruth. She, he would be married to Ruth. Naomi's not, not trying to pull a, a bait and switch on him. She, she, she's thinking about getting Ruth married to Boaz, but Naomi would be helped as well. And it's this, this, it's this idea of redeemer. This word gets used a lot in Christian faith. Redeemer, redemption, redeemed. And it, as Christians, if you're, if you're a Christian in the room, you, we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that, that we have been redeemed by Jesus, that, that he was sent down from heaven to live perfectly, to die sinlessly, and to rise again miraculously. That, that he's come into our lives and actually pays the price for our sins. That he redeems us so that we can approach God on on, on any sort of field. Now, I don't know, you can't even say even field. We're still, on our, we're still called to be face down in the dirt before God, but at least we can stand before him. At least we can lie before him. He literally redeems us. And rede- Redeemer here, it kind of has a, a similar aspect to it in the sense of being paid for, uh, but it, it, it's different in scope. There's some considerations I want to lay out as we, as we kind of picture and, and visualize what this Redeemer is. It, the considerations regarding this practice— when land was sold in Israel, when land was sold in Israel, it wasn't like the booming Long Island housing market that everyone is selling houses and making a ton of money and going out and buying something else. You sold your land, and it was essentially like a lease. You were basically giving it to another person for a price, and they got to hold it, they got to hold it for 50 years. They got to hold it for 50 years, and, they, and anything that gets produced from that land, because we talked about how this is an agricultural society, anything produced from that land, anything harvested, goes to that family. That, they purchased it. They have the rights to their, the yearly harvest every year for 50 years. At the end of that 50 years, titles, everything goes back. Everything goes back to the original owner. Now, Elimelech sold his land. We talked about how he abandoned his hope that God was going to fix things in Judah. So he sold his land. It doesn't say it in Scripture, and I don't mean to interject into the word of God, but I imagine if there was a famine and the land was like bronze, that he probably sold it for a very low price because he wanted to get what he could out of it, squeeze what he could out of it, and go to Moab. And he left. He left. Now, 
this land could be redeemed. This redeemed in the sense of being paid for. But that person is going to set the price. They're not going to, you can't show up and be like, hey, I've realized now that Judah's doing pretty good right now, actually, and I'm going to give you your $5 back. I would like my land back. It doesn't work like that because now land is thriving. We see in Boaz, for instance, he's got a whole team of people working and harvesting. They're doing well in Judah. So now that land is worth more. It's worth more than they even sold it for. And so according to precedent, this land would have been, you could look in, if you want to write it down in Numbers chapter 27, it talks a little bit about it. Numbers chapter 27 talks about how land would have been passed down to the sons. If not the sons, then a brother. If not the brother, then the brother's, the, the brother's sons and the father's brother. Uh, 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 the sons of the father, sorry, brother, I'm, 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 I'm brain farting all over the place, dad's brother's sons, your cousins, I should just say cousins, cousins works, so this, this sold field of Elimelech would have descended to his sons, but they also died in a foreign land, and so the rights of the lands in a murky way do go down to Naomi and in part to Ruth, she is entitled to a share of it because she's Malin's widow, but there's, there's going to be some time. We know that he spent, they spent 10 years in, in Moab. That means there's probably at least another 40 years left on that, on that wait period to get the land back into their name. There's no way in, in their minds that they can see themselves getting a hold of this property without someone stepping in and redeeming them. Naomi and Ruth have no ability on their own to pay for their redemption. And I think so much as I, as I work through this text— how much as Christians we come to the table like that, that we have no ability to come before God and say, I got this. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to show up to church. I'm going to do community service. I'm going to help out my friends. I'm going to be nice to my, my siblings. That's not enough. We have no money, not enough money in the world to pay God for that redemption. And so it's in this light, the weighty responsibility of a redeemer that we see Boaz, that we see Boaz now. And he's an average man. He's, not, he's, he's, a, he's fulfilling a certain type that looks like God the Father. He fulfills a certain type that looks like God the Son. But he is just an average man. But he's a godly man. He's a man that knows deeply who God is. He knows God's will. And we see this spiritual maturity. Last week we touched upon God seeing the, our heart's intentions. And Boaz is, is, is outworking this faith. He's taking care of God's people. He's taking care of the marginalized and the needy. He's very spiritually mature. And he shows that it's not how you act towards someone that's well off. It's not how you act even towards Christians in, in a church. It's what do you do outside of the walls? What do you do when you go out into the world, when you deal with someone who, on, on, on Instagram, that is politically completely abhorrent to you? And how do you interact with that person? How do, you, how do you take care of the person that's begging for food or begging for money on the corner? That's what God sees. That's what spiritual maturity is. We've been talking during our confessions about what it looks like for husbands and wives to interact with each other. Husbands in the room, are, are you guys, I mean, we're called to be like Christ. That means we die for our brides. We're supposed to kill our flesh. We're supposed to kill our desires, our own well-being. And wives, we're supposed to, to submit as, as we do to Jesus, to submit to, to the will of our husbands. Parents, we have to pray to be honorable and worthy of the respect of our children. That when we ask them to do something, they trust us because they know that we have integrity, that we have spiritual maturity, and they can trust what we're asking them to do is for their own benefit, even if they don't necessarily see it playing out. And children, 
We have to listen to our parents. We have to honor our parents. We, these are all things that God sees, and, it, and he sees it behind closed doors. He doesn't, it, it, we can all act nice and, and calm and excited and pleasurable in, in public, but it really matters what we're doing behind closed doors. That's what God sees. And Boaz embodies these godly attributes. In chapter 2, we saw uh, he's known as a man of good standing. He knows where his blessings come from. He, he displays chesed. He displays this, this outworking of faith. And despite being just a man, we do see characteristics of God. We see it here in chapter 3. He calls Ruth daughter. He says, my daughter. That is... That is such a, uh, a term of love and compassion and protection. He, he, he wants to see her thrive. He wants to see her protected. In chapter 2, he abundantly blesses her with more than her fill. He goes out of his way at his own cost to make sure she's fed, to make sure she takes something home to her mother-in-law. In chapter 3, he sends her home with plenty. He sees who Ruth really is. And Boaz really sees Ruth, that, that she's not just a hard worker, that she's not just someone who's making the most out of the situation that she's in. He sees her. He sees her faithfulness to God. He sees her faithfulness to God through the way that she, through her loyalty to Naomi. He sees this faithfulness played out the way that she clings to Naomi, that she's clinging to the God that Boaz worships. And it was confirmed here in in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, that he sees how she's interacting even with with the young men. She's not going after young men to meet her needs on her terms. She's trusting in God's timing, that this, this timing takes practice. This, this idea that she's, she's not just jumping the gun and trying to find someone who's, he says rich or poor, meaning there's a good chance that we believe that, Naomi's, uh, that, that Ruth is an attractive woman. She's a young woman. She's, in, she's available and she's ready to, to be married and to have children. And yet she's not jumping to the first guy that talks to her, whether rich or poor. She's waiting on the Lord, and this timing takes practice. There's this recognition of each other's holiness that builds on one another. That Boaz sees it in Ruth, and Ruth sees it in Boaz, and Boaz sees it in Ruth, and we start seeing them building this trust, this this affection, this godly affection with each other. In seeing Ruth's self-respect, the way that she handles herself, and seeing her faithfulness, Boaz is touched. His response is respect. His response is respect to Ruth. He thinks first of, God, of Ruth by God's standards. He doesn't see a temptress as, as, as God's word might actually warn him about, that a woman from Moab would be tempting him away from his God. He doesn't see Ruth as that. He sees, like God sees our hearts, he sees Ruth's heart. He thinks first of Ruth by God's standard. He protects her. He protects her in the field. He, 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 he tells her to stick by his women. He tells his men to look out for her and actually to sneak stuff to the side and say, let her glean from this. He hooks her up without her even knowing it, possibly. He provides for her, and he's willing to do so at a personal cost. For Boaz and Ruth, their faith is submitted to God and his will. Every step of the way in this, they trust in the Lord. They trust that God's will is being done and that he's going to bless them abundantly, and it might not look like how they want it to look like, But I guarantee Ruth came home and celebrated the fact that she had her fill, that she had a full belly. That was a celebration. And this this timing takes practice. You don't just just start trusting in God. You don't just start trusting in the people around us. I believe that 
there's first this sort of horizontal action, this, this, this trust that's developed from us to God, and, from, and that in that trust, God will bless us. And again, the word blessing can mean so many different things. It doesn't necessarily mean prosperity and good health and the job that we want and the spouse that's perfect. Lord knows it didn't work out for, no, she's, Sam. <laughs> she missed it, it's all right. <laughs> it, it, it means different things to different people because God's plan is for our good. It's, it's a bigger plan than we could ever imagine. And for Naomi, she's still in the thick of it. She's still practicing. She's still practicing. We see the fruits of her unfaithfulness, that they abandoned their land. They went into a foreign land, her and Elimelech and her sons, and that she lost everything. We've witnessed what it looks like to be to have unfaithfulness. And honestly, by the feel of the beginning, chapter 3, like if we, if, if we had to wait for another, like back to kids in the room, we didn't always stream shows. You used to have to wait for the next week for, sh- for the next episode to come out. So if we read like that first, that first uh, you know, from 1 to, set to 5, we'd be like, what's going to happen next? Like this does not look good. Naomi is, is not setting things up for Ruth the way that we probably should. And I don't think it's because of her intentionality. Because right away, Ruth says, uh, Naomi says, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? It really feels like Naomi's looking at the situation that's in front of her and saying, I need to take care of Ruth. She's stuck by me. I'm going to stick by her. And God brought us to this point. I'll take it to the finish line. I'm going to move it past the finish line. I'm going ch- to take it. Now. God, thank you, Lord, for getting me here. I got it from here. Moving forward. There's this lack of faith in God's timing. She sees an opportunity for familiar redemption, and she jumps the gun. She proceeds the wrong way. She hatches this plan, this, this I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's a little bit sketchy. She's, she's telling him, she's telling Ruth to get dressed up, to put on, anoint her, it means put on perfume, look good, smell good, and if this plan is being constructed during the day, but she's saying, wait until night, Go back out to the countryside, because they live in the city at this point. Go back out to the countryside. Go back out to where Boaz is. He's going to be eating. He's going to be drinking. Go out and find him in secret. Don't let him know that it's you. Don't let him know that you're even there. Just crawl up underneath him, and he will tell you what to do. And that's not advice that I would give my daughters. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not telling them to do that. That's... That, it's, it's a lack of trust that God is, is going to work this thing out. Naomi's plan, I think, could have been a real disaster if God was not in complete control. And I, I actually see that, we, that little mustard seed of faith, I actually do see it right at the end of her instructions when she says, he will tell you what to do. There's still a little inkling of trust that God is working through in Naomi because that's not of Naomi's doing. We saw what Naomi's plan was. That last piece, I believe, comes directly from God. That last piece that's saying, like, trust Boaz. He will, he will tell you what to do. Now, to, to understand this, I, I don't, I don't want to paint Naomi in this light that she's trying to, like, get Ruth in a hookup situation, like a one-night stand. That's not what's actually happening here. Uh, we have to separate our perception of how this would transpire in today's times with how it's transpiring then. Naomi wants Ruth to be married to Boaz. She's not trying to just have them hook up. She wants them to be united in a godly way, and she just sees a shortcut. 
She says, hey, go tempt him. Like, you're a beautiful woman. You're a faithful woman. He likes you. He's hooked you up. He's given you all this food and all these leftovers. Go, go get him. Go out there and get him. And she doesn't know how Boaz react, will react in this moment, but she trusts because there's, there's, there's this worthiness that Boaz is known in this clan as, as a worthy man. And so she sees opportunity to unite the two, and she pounces on it in her own timing, on her own terms. This, this might sound familiar for some of us, that God brings us to the point of, of blessing, and then we try to stumble over the finish line or stumble into the end zone on our own accord, on our own terms, instead of just waiting and abiding and timing. But Ruth, she heard God speaking, and she submits to Boaz. She submits to Boaz. Literally, she, she asks again, as, as Boaz prayed the wings of, uh, of, that God's wings would cover her in chapter 2, she again asks for, for Boaz to spread his wings over her. Like a, a very strong allusion to godliness, that you would spread your wings of blessing over me. And it's in this submission. She's asking for blessing in submission. She's trusting Boaz. And in this dark countryside, in a quiet room where there's no human eyes watching, Boaz shines. Boaz shines as the redeemer that we've been, that we've been seeing build up into this point. Boaz sees Ruth as I think Adam would have saw Eve. He, he sees this woman that's perfectly made for him. That it's, it's the perfect partner that, 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 he can, that he can stay up late talking to, that he can be physically attracted to. It's, it's okay to, be, to have physical attraction to your, to your husbands and to your wives. It's, that's a good thing. He, he, he sees all these things checked off, his helper, a potential partner. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Boaz is called worthy by the narrator over and over again, and that Ruth is called worthy. He's a, she's a worthy woman. Because both of them are, while they're displaying chesed, while they're displaying trust, in God's covenant and God's promises, we're seeing God's blessing pour out even more upon them by doing it the right way. And we see a strong comparison in these two with, with Naomi and Elimelech. It's a stark contrast. It's a stark contrast. We have Naomi and Elimelech completely forcing God's hand, saying, I see that what's happening in Judah. I know that you want me to prosper. We I'm called to your purpose. I'm going to prosper. And so I'm going to go into Moab and do my thing. And we see that contrasted with Boaz and with Ruth being worthy, godly people. And Boaz, specifically, he's marked, he's marked by God with, by duty, by grace. He's marked by the sign of this covenant. And, and you see this in the way that he recognizes the value of Ruth. Because he resists what could have been disastrous by, by Naomi's rashness, by, by the situation that Naomi has kind of contrived on her own terms, this, situ- this, this story might not have wound up in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, we, we talk about all the godly examples of, of, of Boaz, but I remind us again, he is a red-blooded man. In the Reformed faith, we believe that we are born sinners, that we have a proclivity to do what is not right, and that it's by God's grace that we can ever do anything that's good. And Boaz here, being this red-blooded, imperfect man who has some drinks in him and is startled awake by a beautiful woman laying at his feet, this story could have gone in a very, very different direction. It could have gone in a very different direction. And we keep saying over and over again, it's all because Boaz is worthy. It's because Boaz is worthy. He's a worthy man. But this is not a subjective opinion. 
worthiness that is being described here is not subjective, and it's not something that's described by Boaz of himself. He's not going around telling people how worthy he is and how godly he is and how great he is. And, oh, did you see all the poor people around the outskirts of my field? Uh, they're all fed really well. Thank you very much. Like, he's not walking around like that. Boaz has integrity. He has integrity. He, he does and seeks to accomplish the will of God regardless of who's looking, regardless of where, if anyone's even around at all. He's submitting to the will of God. In my reading, I came across a great quote, I think, from this 18th century theologian, Jonathan Edwards, a preacher from the United States. And he wrote these personal resolutions. And one was, quote, resolved. Never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but that what tends to the glory of God. End quote. This idea that every single thing in our lives that we do is for the glory of God. That's a resolution that Jonathan Edwards has. That's something that we recognize in Boaz. This, this desire to have integrity, to be deeply embedded in the will of God. Boaz knows, we know that Boaz is worthy, and, and I said before we have this objective standard because we have the Torah, we have the law, and Boaz knows the Torah. He knows the law that is passed down to the Israelites. He knows what is expected of a man of his status. He knows what God wants to see from him, and it doesn't matter if he's in a dark room where no one's looking when he could get away with it if no, no one's going to talk about it. He steps up, and he has that integrity still. He submits himself to the law, and he does so joyfully. He's not saying, oh, the Lord put calamity upon me. There's this bodacious babe right at my feet, and I can't do a dang thing about it. Like, the, he's, not, he's not frustrated. He says, I'm going to bless you. I want to bless you, and I want to go about it the right way. And it's because he can abide in God's timing with good conscience and with complete confidence. And unlike Naomi, he doesn't mistake temptation for opportunity. He doesn't mistake a temptation that's right in front of him, that that's immediately 100% what God wants him to do. Why else would there be a, a lovely lady at my feet? Like, obviously God wants me to put a move on her right now, right this second. That's, it's not what's going through his mind because he knows God's law. He knows what's expected of him. He knows the importance of abiding by it. Naomi is tempted to run ahead of God's timing. She's operating not outside the law, but she knows what she can get away with without really bringing condemnation down on Ruth, and so what happens will happen, and she toes that line. But Boaz clings to God. Boaz clings to his word, to his promises, to the promise of his providence that, that his plan will work out. Last week, we talked briefly about Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, 28, verse 28, that all things will work out for the good of those called to his purpose. And it's a feel-good Christian verse, especially when we're down in the dumps, that, that these things are going to work out for good, that we can trust God to take care of us. But the very next verse, being called to his purpose, means conforming to Jesus Christ. It means, it means Jesus Christ, the perfect embodiment of God's law, living sinlessly, abiding by God's law, that we are now called to emulate in our lives. Now, I'm not saying in a legalistic sense, like, if you don't do this, you're screwed. But this is what, the, what we're supposed to be striving towards. And this is what Boaz was striving towards. We believe that in Christ, we're actually set free from the sins that would have eventually damned us. That when God the Father looks at us at the end of time, 
by his grace, we are saved by the blood of Jesus. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. He doesn't see, he doesn't see the frustrated, angry person that is annoyed at waking up early in the morning for his daughters despite, he lo- despite him loving them. He doesn't see the person who faltered in his trust that God was going to provide for him and his family. He doesn't falter that the, the, in, on, on, on the guy who, who let his wife down time and time again. He sees Jesus Christ. This, this law is no longer a law of condemnation. It's, it's a law of guidance. It's a law of grace. It's a loving father telling us, these are the standards that will optimize your life. If you abide in this, you will see an optimization in your life. You will see holiness, and you will see blessing because of that holiness. And there are those that we believe that, that we're free from the law. And that's partially true. We're, we're free from the condemnation, but we're not free from, it doesn't go away. That We're not free that like, the law has been taken away from us. It's, it's that we don't have condemnation, that it still plays a part in us knowing God's will and God's desires for our lives. The standard laid out is upheld by Boaz. And we see it take form in this timing, in his trusting in God's timing. Boaz has put it to practice. We see that God has a way of working things out in his timing. And I don't want, I don't want to cast this idea of fear that like we have to worry about every single thing we're doing, that, oh my gosh, am I in lockstep with God? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if I should go out to the, to the bar tonight because God doesn't want people to drink alcohol to an excessive amount, and will I drink alcohol, and will I be around people that are drinking alcohol? Like, you don't want to make yourself crazy in fear because we see that God actually will provide. We see it in Naomi. We see a very poorly illustrated plan come to bring beauty and blessing in, in, in the, the lives that God chooses. But we don't live in complacency either. We're not called to, to, to sit back. And I, I think of my own journey as a Christian. Um, my, my proclivity to cling to physical desires. As even, even after first coming to Christ, it was hard to let go of, of, of promiscuity, of, of this desire to, to hook up with, with, with attractive women. I, that's, that's a, that was a real sin, a real hardship for me. And it bled in to my marriage. It's bled in to different relationships in my life. It's caused me, for, for probably a year and a half, two years, it caused me to actually resist committing to Sam. It, 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 I, I, because of the weight that I was carrying with that, by, by, not a, by not staying in that lane that God had laid out for me, it caused me angst. It caused me anxiety that I didn't deserve to be in this situation because I wasn't abiding in God's holiness. I wasn't trying, even trying to get in that position. I hurt myself and I hurt others, but God's timing prevails. God's timing prevails. And I think that we're called to strive towards this. We're called to try to put this to practice as best we possibly can. In his word, through his word, we can learn better his will and we can avoid some of that self-inflicted harm that might befall us. The inflicted harm that it, that it does damage to us ourselves by our actions. As I'm wrapping up here, I want to make sure, again, I'm, I'm not advocating this, this idea of let go and let God. That's, that's kind of common in, in, our, in our brothers' and sisters' lives. Maybe it's a common in, in our lives. This idea that I'm going to pray to God and he will provide and I'm going to sit still until he does. Like we are called 
to step out. We are called, I mean, we see two instances of urgency, right, in chapter 3. We see two instances of urgency, one in the beginning of the chapter and one at the end of the chapter. One of them is not trusting God's timing and one of them is trusting God's timing. But both of them are moving with urgency. We see in the beginning, Naomi forcing God's hand. And we see at the end, Boaz resting in God's hand. Boaz wants Ruth. He finds her, undoubtedly finds her attractive. He sees her as a very worthy woman. He keeps saying it. He knows that other people see her as a worthy woman. This is an upstanding woman that he wants to commit himself to. He wants all of it. He wants her as a friend. He wants her as a partner. He wants her as a lover. But he trusts God enough to stick to the proper order of things. We see this immediately when he says, there's another redeemer that's closer than I. I want you. I want to be with you. I want to provide for you. I want to take care of you. I want to love you. But there's someone who actually holds a closer position than I do. And it's God's will that he be consulted before I step forward. But he didn't just sit around. He didn't just say, oh, God, I want Ruth. Oh, God, I want Ruth so bad. Like, he didn't just sit there and pray that God would just drop Ruth in his lap. He, we see it immediately that Naomi says that, uh, uh, and wait, because you're gonna, it's going to be found out today that he will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. This happens today. My, brother, my brother's in the army. He, says, he always says, uh, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And I mean, he's talking about presenting a gun and doing stuff with it. But it's this idea of, tru- of moving with, 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 with urgency. You have to move with urgency, but you have to be intentional with your steps. You have to be considering what God wants from you. And for Boaz, he believes he sees God's will for Ruth to be in his life. And so he goes out with urgency, slow and smooth and fast. And I want to ask, as we wrap up here, how does this play out in our lives today? What, what is it that you're coming up against right now where you so badly see God's plan unfolding? You, you, you know it's right there. You're right on the cusp of it, and, you're, and your desire is to pick up the ball and take it over the next line yourself and to not trust in the timing that actually got you to that point. Or maybe, maybe you're way back in Moab still. But Ruth never saw herself being put in front of a man like Boaz. She never dreamed of it when she was a little girl. She didn't think it was going to happen even when she got to Bethlehem. So where in our lives can we develop a trust in God's providence. This is what Naomi is starting right now. At the end of chapter 3, we're finally starting to see she has confidence. Boaz is going to get it done because God's going to get it done. Boaz is going to do what has to be done. And brothers and sisters, I encourage us here to cling to God's word. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. If, if, you, if you have an iPhone or a smartphone, you have version. Read God's scripture and don't, don't read it like a lawyer. Don't read it by trying to set yourself up with loopholes that you can jump through to continue living the life that you want to live on your terms. I, I don't mean to sound harsh, and I know it's something that I struggle with as well, but there, there, is, there is opportunity in the Bible to understand fully and deeply who God is and what his desires are for us. What, what is it that he wants to see from us? And how is it that he will optimize the life that he's laid out before us? And... Uh, I'm about to pray the pastoral prayer, and then we, we close that with the Our Father. And I want to encourage us, as we say the Our Father together in, in just, a, just a couple minutes, 
when you pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, really mean that. Really, really think about what that means in your life and how it would look to see it played out. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law, Lord. We thank you not because we, it's, the Bible is something that we can whack people in the head with, that it's not something that we have to hurt ourselves trying to uphold, Lord, that you have done it all by the, son of your, by the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you for a law of grace. We thank you for a law of guidance. And Lord, we ask you to, to move in our hearts to, to plant the seed of confidence that we need to trust in your plan, to trust in your timing as we look forward with great expectation to all that you have to, for our prosperity. We praise you and we worship you and we, and we pray this on the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.